Happy Father's Day to all the fathers who are here this morning. Um, and for our sermon, uh, we have a, a special guest preacher. We have Michael Schiller. Michael um, is a member of our lay preaching cohort. Um, he has preached for us one time before, but this is his first full Sunday sermon. Um, and uh, Michael has been serving this church uh, since the fall as one of our uh, interns. Um, and uh, he's going to be going on InterVarsity staff full time. Are you already on InterVarsity staff, or is it coming in? in okay, part time. Yeah. yeah. So uh, thank you, Michael, for being with us this morning. Sure, thank you. All right, let's pray this morning as we begin. Father God, what an absolute blessing it is to be here with your church, um, with our brothers and sisters who are doing the work here in the city of Tallahassee, Lord. We're so thankful to be in your presence. Um, we're thankful for the chance to engage with you so deeply on this Sunday morning. And so we pray that you would guide our hearts and guide our minds as we progress through this sermon. Lord, I pray that you would reveal, as we were reading in our opening colic, of the ways in which we withhold things from you, these deep, darker parts of our heart. Lord, may they be exposed and sanctified according to your will and according to your purpose. In your precious and holy name, we lift these things up to you and ask for your peace. Amen. All righty. So... I want to talk to you all about a television show called Beyond Scared Straight. And <laughs> from the laughs, I'm sure some of y'all know what it is. And if you haven't heard about it, buckle up. So <laughs> this show is hilarious, and it's kind of a mess. So it takes a bunch of delinquents and kids with violent streaks or anger issues, the problem children, and arrests them and puts them in prison next to a bunch of angry prisoners, and I'm sure you can tell that this is a brilliant idea, um, but really, let's <laughs> look at how ridiculous this is. You have a room full of angry eight-year-olds standing face-to-face -face with guys who have murdered people and are probably serving 30 to life, and the cops and the criminals are allowed to intimidate the kids, and so they're getting up in their face, and they're screaming, ah, oh, you don't want to end up like me. Ah, oh, it's so bad in prison, and the kids wear the uniforms. They eat the food. It's a whole, it's a whole riot. Now, the, the show's been over for a while, and it's worth noting that a small percentage of these kids would cry and turn away from their trifling ways and behave. However, there's a number of kids who weren't scared at all, pretty defiant, and those are the funny clips that people watch on YouTube. And what these kids began to realize is that the cops and the prisoners can't actually hurt these kids. They can't actually threaten them with anything physical. Furthermore, the children don't really understand the nature of life in prison as a consequence, and so they don't have an understanding of what this is actually supposed to invoke in them, other than this initial fear. And this lack of perceived threat empowered these kids to dig their heels deep, you know, keep misbehaving, and learn nothing from this weird reality show experiment. The intent was good, arguably, but the design and execution were pretty poor. Surely, if you commit crimes, you go to jail. But again, kids don't really grasp that in its entirety. And if they figure out it's all smoke and mirrors, the social experiment holds no weight. Now that the show is long over, we can kind of chuckle at the absurdity of it. However, at the end of the day, if you look past all the shenanigans and whatnot, it all boils down to a formula with two simple conclusions. It's either A, they came face to face with the prospect of their futures and they changed, or they came face to face and did not change. And this is a formula we see here in the book of Ecclesiastes. We can kind of look at Ecclesiastes like a court case. 
chapter one is this opening statement, vanity of vanities, as all this vanity, as Pastor Taylor preached on last week. And chapters two through 11 are the real meat and potatoes of it all. That's the evidence. That's the counter arguments and all these different things. And then chapter 12 wraps it up with the main point of the book, which we'll discover as we go. But as I mentioned before, we heard last week that King Solomon or the preacher, I'll use them interchangeably, but I am like Pastor Taylor of the opinion that it is Solomon and we'll be preaching from that perspective. And so we see King Solomon late in years offering this sharp reality check to those who read his words. It's listen and change or listen and don't. And the speaker opens by discussing the nature of life as a vanity, this vapor <clears throat> that's here one moment and gone the next. He continues by adding that there's nothing new under the sun and what has been is now and will be forevermore. The speaker ends in 118 with, for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. We can look at a, oh, I already said that, my fault. Let me repeat verse 18 for you as we continue into chapter two as this transition into what Solomon's gonna be talking about. And keep it in mind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I had a Bible open, but I forgot to bring it up, so I don't know what page it is off the top of my head. But whoever finds it first can shout it out, help everybody. What is it? 553. Five, five, All right, let's turn there. So with what we remember from verse 18. You may be wondering, what specific knowledge does Solomon come across that increases his sorrow? It's this knowledge of life and everything that it has to quote-unquote offer. Solomon, he searched far and wide for ultimate fulfillment, and yet it only brought him sorrow. And I'll show you. Let's begin in verse 1. Where does Solomon look for fulfillment first? It's laughter, which is pretty interesting, right? The very first thing that he pursues is laughter. And laughter is good for the soul. I'm sure you can agree. A lot of times when I'm stressed out or I'm going through something emotionally heavy, I'll put on some impractical jokers or clips from the office to cheer me up. And Joe is definitely the best joker, but we'll debate that afterwards. Um, these clips, after I haven't seen them in a while, are really refreshing. They have me wheezing and crying on the floor. Um, they're messing great. But there's a harsh reality that as soon as the laughing stops, all the stresses and the problems come on back. They never really left. And laughter is a really, really good thing. It truly is. I haven't seen too much of The Chosen, but from the stuff that I have seen, it's really refreshing to see Jesus himself laughing, enjoying company with his disciples, and sharing in this joy. But again, it's just not permanent. It cannot ultimately fulfill you. And it couldn't fulfill Solomon either. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, I said of laughter, it's mad. And madness in this context means essentially that it's just for show which confirms this idea of laughter being a cover-up. It's bravado. It's not ultimately fulfilling. The next thing the preacher tries to pursue is wine. And just like laughter, wine's a pretty good thing. I'm 21 now, so I can say that. <laughs> Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, but we also see warnings in Scripture against things like drunkenness. The overconsumption of this good thing becomes a bad thing. And just like laughter, alcohol is a temporary cover-up. The buzz will fade, and you're back to where you were before. Or if you're hungover, you're probably worse off than you were before. <laughs> it's just not fulfilling. The preacher continues in verses 4 through 10 to go over everything else that he pursued for fulfillment. And then in this next category that he pursues as accomplishment, we see in verses 4 through 6 that he built houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, 
He planted fruit trees of every kind. That's a lot of fruit. He also made himself pools simply for the fact that he needed to water all these trees and all these plants. I imagine Jerusalem looked like the interior at Red Eye over there, all the flowers on the wall. But the preacher doesn't stop there. In verse 7, he buys a bunch of servants, male and female, and has slaves born in his house. He also had a bunch of cattle and sheep, more than anybody before him. But wait, there's more. In verse 8, he gathers silver and gold and treasure from all the kings over all the world. Did you know that there was actually so much silver in Jerusalem that it was as common as a rock that you could pick up on the street? Solomon crashed the global economy and made silver worthless just in pursuit of fulfillment. And not only did he gather these things, he gathered the best talent in the world with singers and many, many concubines for his own pleasure. Verse 9, he keeps it very real. I became great, he says. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Well, evidently, that's pretty plain to see. While Solomon certainly had more of these things than we'll ever have, the desires that Solomon had tend to be pretty similar to our own desires. We pursue these things, laughter, wine, projects, nature, status, wealth, clout, resources, intimacy. But Solomon looks back, and you know what he feels? Empty. Solomon had everything, and everything was not enough. What makes us think that we're going to be any different? Oh, if I, if I just got this job that I was looking for. Oh, if I just got married, then I, I, need a, I just need one drink and one drink. Or if I just had a little bit more money, then what? Surely, we can't ignore the practical benefits that come from things like marriage or a job or money. But these things will not fulfill you. They cannot fulfill you. And very honestly, Solomon continues his reflections and realizes in verse 13, that the wisdom given to him by God was worth more than all of these things that he had that were tangible. Notably, wisdom came before all of these things too, and it outlasted them in value. But even this, even this wisdom was not permanent. And Solomon goes on to realize that in the end, wise or foolish, everybody dies. And this is quite the conundrum for Solomon because part of his identity was found in this wisdom of his. He was known globally for it, and even today, People who would reject Christianity would quote a proverb because Solomon really had this great wisdom. But again, in this identity, it didn't matter because everyone's going to die. Exasperated. Solomon states in verse 17 that he hated life because it was only temporary. Not even someone as great as he who gathered all these things that he did could escape this quick end. It only gets worse for Solomon in verse 18 because he realizes something absolutely demoralizing. When he inevitably dies, all his work will be passed on to someone else, someone lesser than he. Oh, that's frustrating. That's very frustrating. And that's, there's a really good quote from musical Hamilton where Alexander Hamilton says, Legacy. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in this garden you never get to see. It's a bittersweet reality hey, that something we plant in our lifetime may grow to become something beautiful, but we'll just never get to see it. And both Hamilton and Solomon became irritated by this. Why? Because all things are temporary. All things will fade, even if they planted these seeds. Because Hamilton, he planted the seeds of the bank system we know today, but that's going to fade. 
Solomon compiled all this wisdom in the Proverbs, but that's going to fade too. And what then does Solomon conclude? He doesn't really come to a definitive answer about fulfillment in chapter 2. He recognizes that all things are a striving after wind, and nothing on earth is actually fulfilling. All right, there's a nugget in verse 25 that actually gives us some hope. He says, beginning in verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Did you catch it at the beginning? Solomon says that apart from God, nobody can find enjoyment here on earth. In verse 24, Solomon seems to be encouraging his readers to, you know, make the most of the vapor that is life. But again, we as people don't actually have the capacity to do that. It's all from the hand of God. All the Solomon stuff that says is best, food, drink, enjoyment, and wisdom, knowledge, and joy, all come from the hand of God. And it's fascinating to me that the most basic fundamentals of life, the food and the drink, and then the most transcendent aspects of life, arguably the wisdom, the knowledge, and the joy, they both come from God. It seems, in a, uh, in a practical way, Solomon is saying we should rely on God for provision for all things, both tangible and intangible, because they all come from God. So in a practical way, we see this truth that we can all get behind. We really need to understand where Solomon's coming from, though, because this conclusion that he makes, this concession, is actually a bit more of a confession on Solomon. By all accounts, Solomon was supposed to be the golden child, the wonder king, because he, like his father, was selected to become, to become the king of Israel. David had 19 kids, and the Lord chose Solomon. Hey, praise God. But 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 9 through 10, outlines what David hears from the Lord. And the Lord promised to have the temple built under Solomon and for Solomon to be at peace during his reign. Furthermore, the account of how Solomon became king in 1 Kings chapter 1 is an account that's full of grace. First of all, Solomon's coronation is completely out of his hands. He does nothing to attain it. This contrasts Adonijah and Absalom, two of David's other sons, who at different points tried to seize the kingship by force, by themselves and for themselves. For Solomon, the kingdom was just given to him. Additionally, Solomon set a pretty good standard of forgiveness in this kingdom by forgiving Adonijah as soon as he became king. And Adonijah knew that David was dying and decided to become king himself. But when the prophet Nathan went and established Solomon as king, Adonijah became fearful, fearful because he knew he wronged God. He was against the will of God. But Solomon forgave him. David gave Solomon this final charge before he passed away. He says in 1 Kings chapter 2, David does to Solomon, So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. David called Solomon to obedience to the law. Solomon started out doing pretty good. Famously, the Lord came to Solomon in Gibeon, and Solomon asked for this wisdom that he's so known for. And as mentioned earlier, 
He would be famous for this wisdom. And this would surely mean that Solomon exercised wisdom in everything that he did. Unfortunately, even from the beginning of Solomon's reign, he had some slip-ups. First King chapter 3, it says Solomon was doing great by following the law, except one critical error. He offered sacrifice and he burned incense in the high places where pagans would worship and perform rituals. Pagan worship had begun seeping into Solomon's practices. And of course, this isn't really surprising because in the same chapter, Solomon makes a great political move by marrying the Pharaoh's daughter, who likely brought these Egyptian practices to Israel. And so while this was great politically for the law, this was not very good. Also, this princess wasn't even his first wife. He had been married already. And lust would devastate Solomon even worse than it did his father. So even at the beginning, Solomon's disregard for who God was was pretty plain to see. And it's really a shame. David was pretty rock solid until his lust completely consumed him. David's failure with Bathsheba led to the crumbling of almost everything in Israel. It was pure chaos. And it had decades worth of consequences. And the people looked to Solomon to rectify the mistakes that David had made. And they really believed in him as their leader, someone who had set this example for them. But are you really so surprised then that Israel would go on to split and then the nation exiled into Babylon for 70 years? Israel was exiled because of idolatry and pagan worship. And Solomon set this standard for them. In one way or another, he communicated right from the start that you can have both God and these other gods, and that the law was a bit flexible. These things could really start to blend. And this brings us back to the passage. Once again, this is a Solomon advanced in years writing to us. One who searched the whole world far and wide for anything and everything he could get his hands on. And he ends by conceding after all this time, what he had at the beginning was what he needed all along. It was God. And when Solomon says that all things he need come from the hand of God, he knows and means all things. And it's really beautiful. It's almost literary, right? But consider it from Solomon's perspective. <laughs> oh, that was kind of rough. I can't envision any possible way that Solomon wasn't in tears writing this. It's such a vicious sting to one's pride to write something like this. It must have ached bad, especially for the one who, by his own standard, became great and surpassed all who were before him. To write that he would fade away and die just like all the others, despite what he had built, and that God would remain above it all must have been crushing to his ego all he built. All the relationships he fostered, his wealth, his status, his health, all of it would pass, but God would remain. And this is a pretty, pretty good summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. God is forever. Humanity is not. We all have to wrestle with that truth. Because just like the kids in Beyond Scared Straight, we may not fully understand the consequences of our actions or the truths of the world around us. And just like the kids, we hear warnings like this in Ecclesiastes, these sharp warnings, these warnings about the reality. But foolishly, we don't always perceive <clears throat> a real threat. Therefore, we act as we deem wise. And it's something that's pretty foolish on our end. We may believe that our earthly endeavors will fulfill us, but Solomon, a man humbled by this truth, is pleading with us, begging us to wake up to reality 
and pursue the eternal God and God alone. And Jesus echoes the sentiment all throughout the gospel. In fact, this entire chapter is very gospel-related. Where this passage lacks closure, the gospel gives it. When Solomon proclaims that he hates life because of its temporary nature, Jesus says in John 12 that whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. Now Solomon could have remained in ignorance with all the things that he had, but he communed with the Lord and realized his deficiency. As said earlier in Solomon, recognizing that God alone must be pursued for a complete fulfillment, Jesus confirms Solomon's wisdom by asking his listeners in the Sermon on the Mount to compare themselves to the flowers of the field. Jesus tells them, although that these people will be really worried about the things they need in life, food, clothes, water, Jesus assures his listeners that these flowers, these, these plants are provided for, but they don't work. They don't do anything that y'all do. So don't worry about it. You're going to be all right. You're going to be provided for. And Jesus says something pretty radical that not in verse 29, that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these flowers. The greatest man in all Jerusalem just got compared to a plant. And to be fair... It was a comparison made by the actual greatest man in Jerusalem, but I digress. Jesus remind, is reminding his listeners that they are not provided for by, by their own hands, but by the hand of God. And given that Solomon came to understand that, I'm sure the flower comparison didn't really make him that much. Solomon, in lamenting the futility of storing treasures up on earth, recognizes where his investments must truly go. Jesus confirms this in our Sermon on the Mount reading again by saying in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is later asked what the greatest commandment is, and he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus describes this as the summary of the law and the prophets, what all of it hinges upon. In Deuteronomy 6, which is the preface to the law, Moses writes, These are the commandments, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. Hear Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And then Deuteronomy goes on to command Israel to fulfill this greatest commandment of loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the law teaches you about how to do that well and how to love your neighbor as yourself. And remember that David charged Solomon with keeping this law and remembering the promise made here in Deuteronomy 6. But Solomon failed. He loved life in all its splendor with all his heart, soul, and mind. Not God. And we do the same, church. We really do. Really sit and consider it. What do you love with all your heart? Or maybe who? What do you devote all your mind to? What do you long for and pursue with all your soul? If the answer is not God, then not only have we broken the greatest commandment, but it means that we are seeking fulfillment in whatever we love with all our heart, soul, and mind. And again, it doesn't mean that what you love with things is necessarily bad, but they will not ultimately fulfill you. And do not take my word for it. Take Solomon's. Take Jesus' word. 
Remember what was said in Deuteronomy 6. Obedience to the law leads to long life and fulfillment. The law is summarized by loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, we can conclude that loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself will be fulfilling to you. Run after God with all that you have. You may not know what the Lord has planned for your life, but you can trust in the promises found in Scripture that loving and seeking after the Lord will fulfill you. As we see in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, and all things you need will fall in line after you. Those who were here when we, when we had preached on that and we had a little demonstration of Jeremiah running around the congregation, I'm sure you remember that. But it's true that when we seek first the kingdom of God, these things will follow after us because the Lord provides, not us. Loving the Lord with all your heart is hard. With all your mind is hard. With all your soul is hard. And we fail every day. But again, Jesus promised that there is fulfillment in him. And we have a community of believers here in this room and across the world who are striving to love God in this way. And given that we all fall short of the standard of this perfect love, we know firsthand the struggles of loving everything else. I'm also positive there are many in this room, though, who can testify to the fact that when they chased the Lord with all that they had, they actually felt fulfillment, true fulfillment, maybe for the first time in their lives. And they've been pursuing that since because there's really nothing like it. What kind of kids will we be? Will we heed this wisdom and turn from our fruitless pursuits, or won't we? Will we cherish the one who died for us, or only the one he died for? Right? Where our treasure is, our heart will be also. Who do we treasure? Let us pursue him, the father of all that is good, with all that we have, and let us encourage each other to do the same daily.